Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am the other one of your hosts, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review TV shows and research. I never say research, but there's plenty of research being done. We do do plenty of research. Apparently, you need to research how to say podcast instead of podcast. Podcast. Uh, You are not a hype man at a jazz club. Uh, I could be if I really wanted to. Mm. We review podcasts that were canceled after one season or mid-season. Uh, maybe all the episodes airs, aired. Maybe all the episodes that were filmed were aired Should or you not. you go to an elocution class? I took a calligraphy class on accident. Oh. And uh, it was just as good as my current elocution is. It's That's bad. a confusing statement. I'm oh, saying okay. it's okay. bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we review shows that were canceled. We're not talking limited series here, okay? We're not talking John Adams starring Paul Giamatti, and I would appreciate all the fan mail that demands we talk about it cease now. I mean, I will give some credit to the people that use John Adams' quills, and, uh, you know, dip it in ink and mail it to us. I, I appreciate the commitment that comes That's with that. That's my calligraphy teacher. Oh, your calligraphy teacher is Johann Schwitzenberg? The. Sorry. The Johann Schwitzenberg. I saw, I saw the title before that. I just, I didn't feel like saying it just like I'll never say, you know, Ohio State University properly. <laughs> we're just going to, we're going to get a lot of angry letters after that one. Tough, tough boobies. Maybe I'll have to bleep it. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we uh, stuff's canceled all the time. It used to be one in, one out. It used to be that if you wanted a new show, you'd have to cancel one. But now with streaming, they're just canceling stuff left and right, you know? Yeah. Anything I missed, John? No, I think uh, we look at all these shows and we are doing the cha-cha slide on their graves and before we get into today's show, Lovecraft Country, Ian, what, uh, what, what you watching? John, I think it behooves us to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. Finally. Finally. We watched this movie uh, weeks, weeks ago. ago, and I was just like, this is the perfect thing to talk about. Before we talk about Lovecraft Country, because Ian's always like, save it for the pod. I'm like, Ian, I'm having a mental breakdown. He's like, save it for the pod. Save it for the pod. Say, yeah, let me know everything awful to you, awful that happens to you all at once on the podcast. Everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, all the tears. No, this movie is extraordinary. I agree. Think it's, I think it's the best thing I've seen, the best movie I've seen in years. I can't think of anything I I don't know, have dude. Loved more. I feel like you declare that kind of stuff kind of kind of frequently. If I'm what was, what was, okay, do you have cite your sources, sir? 
Uh, I don't. It's just you're like when you love something, you have these love goggles on. Oh, I do. And you're just like so into something in the moment that you uh, forget about everything else that you love so dearly. I agree that when you look at everything uh, through rose colored glasses, all the red flags. All the red flags just look like flags. Exactly. Best Bojack Horseman quote. Saddest. Saddest Bojack Horseman quote. We might be able to find sadder. I don't know. I think you're looking through Bojack Horse but sad goggles right now, and you're not seeing all the. All they all the just sad. look like horses. They all just look like horses. No, this one though, for me, it really impacted me in a big way, and I it is like a culmination of a lot of the best things that I've seen over the past couple years. Like I think about my favorite movies from the past few years, and I think it has something like. Each one of them touches on something that I think this movie does all of it. The mm. existential stuff, the just, you know, absolute zaniness of it, the family dynamics, uh, the kung fu. sci-fi, the kung fu, the hot dog fingers, the trophies and buttholes. You know, everything that you could want from a movie, you get. That's right. Yeah, I um, didn't know what to expect, and that's exactly what I wanted out of it because I saw a trailer a couple months ago, and I was like, wow, I really want to see that, but I hope I never know anything else about it. So I I never even saw the trailer. I just I heard Michelle Yeoh, Multiversal Travel, travel, and I was like, gimme, gimme, gimme a man after midnight. It started off... A little weird. And I was like, I don't know what I'm watching here, you know. And then it just opened up. It bloomed like a flower. Mm -hmm. And it just really nailed the uh, mother-daughter relationship. It somehow was a unique take on the multiverse movie trend right now, which apparently they started writing it in 2010. So... They thought of all this before it was a trend, but uh, I I just can't believe I saw something that was so unique. It was very much to use it and express finding your identity so well was just a great use of it, right? Mm-hmm. It was a great. No, tool. I fully I fully agree with that. Yeah, I think that the whereas many multiverse movies and content is all about just cramming Easter eggs into something or furthering a plot or diverting a plot or something like that. The fact that they actually made it character-based is something that should be applauded in every conceivable way. And it wasn't just one character examination. It was every character that there was had different versions of themselves and it, just took everyone down the road that maybe they thought they could have gone down. And the second I started feeling for hot dog fingers, I was like, this movie. How did they make me emotional about people with hot dog fingers? They that still is have a, feet. My God. That's a trick, man. I mean, anyone that I know that's trying to write a good drama, I always push the fact that Great dramas are also funny because if you just try to hit your point really hard 
and make everybody sad for an hour and a half and relentlessly downer, especially like existential movies are usually very gloomy. A lot of, a lot of mumbling, you know what I mean? A lot of smoking cigarettes and looking off in the distance. You're talking about, uh, are you like Sam Neill? Who are you? I'm just trying to be as quiet as I can. Are you? But being... I guess I'm kind of doing Sam Neal. Maybe are you doing um, the remake of the Barbra Streisand movie, which was a remake of the woman from Wizard of Oz movie, Judy Garland. A Star Is Born. That's it. Are you doing a Star Maybe. Is Born? I think, um, I think all of us are doing a star is born. So the fact that they could contemplate the meaning of life, what is existence all about, and find a unique take on it and make it poignant and make you laugh, make you cry, give you you know great action, um, make you think, uh, distill it down into... Uh, an edible arrangement. Um, it was just, it was really incredible. And someone I know said it just wasn't good. And I was like, look, you cannot like it. And that's a matter of taste, but you cannot say it's not good. I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with your criticism of that person. I will also say that uh, you, we both said Sam Neill. We meant to say Sam Elliott. No, Sam Neill's from Jurassic Park. That's yes. right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And for... I could I could not think of Sam Elliott's name, so I read I regurgitated Sam Neal. You're such a sheep, John. You're such a sheep, Ian. See? Well, ba ba. Let's get to the show. Yeah, I believe it's ba show time. It sucked, but I like it. <laughs> Five, four. Three, two, one, showtime! In 2020, Misha Green and HBO created a sci-fi fantasy horror family drama. And if that isn't enough, it also confronted America's divisive racial injustices head-on. Today we're talking about Lovecraft Country, and we're going full spoiler. We need to go full spoiler for this one. It is a dense show. Ian, yeah. this is a daunting task that we have uh, thrust upon ourselves. To... And my, my guess is that if anyone is finding our podcast for the first time on this episode, the majority of you are seeking Lovecraft Country content and analysis because this show is quite the content and deserves and requires plenty of analysis. Yeah, I'm just intimidated by how I think my my self-consciousness is uh, really weighing on me because I, I see myself as a worm and I see this show as a butterfly. Wow. But worms don't turn into butterflies. So... I know. That's how far removed I am from this show. Wow. <laughs> in terms of in terms of just sheer ambition. You know, a butterfly could flap its wings and change the course of time. A worm could die in the dirt and nobody would remember that it was even there. <laughs> I <laughs> is, love is that. Too, is that too dark? 
No, I, I think it's not dark enough considering uh, what the show is like and what it's about and the emotional toll that every episode of it takes on you. Yeah, it is. Each of the 10 episodes of season one covers a different genre, uh, a different character, a different theme. Uh, it all still manages to feel cohesive. And it came out at a really interesting time. So the show ran from August to October of 2020. So uh, right after the summer of the of George Floyd, of the Black Lives Matter protests. It was also very shortly after HBO launched HBO Max, which was in May of 2020. So, oh, wow. yeah, it was very, it was, there was a lot of people figuring stuff out, both from an entertainment perspective and from a society perspective. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize that was a COVID launch. I, yeah, shortly after. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it was like Peacock, so was Paramount Plus. I mean, some of these like big streamers that have emerged in the past like two years are, you know, they're really gaining ground. And And one one of the interesting things to me about Lovecraft Country is that it's on the heels of HBO having success with stuff like Big Little Lies and like Watchmen, Mm -hmm. which were both series that uh, were based on they had a source material either a book or a you know uh, not a comic book what a graphic novel there it is sorry nerds <laughs> uh sorry geeks nerds are smart you're geeks yeah uh you're not necessarily smart i'm not saying you're not smart i'm just saying you're not necessarily smart uh that's the difference between a nerd and a geek anyway uh this was on the heels of those two shows and i think i might be missing one or two other ones where they had this was like a good model that HBO was developing. Find a book or a series, create a show based on it, make the show like the first season, the source material and either win a bunch of awards or keep it going, you know, to get the ratings. We call it uh, the Reese Witherspoon model. I was literally just going to bring up big little lies made Reese Witherspoon a billionaire essentially. Yeah, because they and sold she just her keeps doing it. for a billion dollars. Well, and that's what she does. She like reads a book and then she makes a show and she sells the rights. And it's it's a brilliant model. And so Lovecraft Country is based off of a novel, uh, not that Reese Witherspoon found, uh, but it's a novel by uh, Matt Ruff, who uh, Jordan Peele found the book uh, a few years ago. And he passed it along to Misha Green. And uh, I got this information from Crafting Lovecraft Country, the -the behind-the-scenes documentary uh, that's also available on HBO Max. And Misha Green said she opened it up. She was like, first chapter, all right. Second chapter, I'm into this. Third chapter, okay, this is a TV show. And Matt Ruff was saying, too, that he sort of designed it as a TV show when he was initially conceiving it. Yeah. And he kind of shopped it around. I mean... Sure. It was written, you know, pre-streaming and, you know, probably in the midst of premium cable. But, you know, there probably wasn't a home for something like this. So he's like, you know, when when did the book actually come out? 2016. So not too long ago, but still, that's what he was saying. He was saying and he's well, I guess he said he spent a few years writing the book. So I would guess he might have conceived of it 
2011, 2012. It's interesting because I think of, you know, 2015, 2016 were big years for the Black Lives Matter movement. And then this show comes out in 2020. And uh, it's just very uh, on the pulse. Yeah. Is what we say. Purely coincidence, though, too, which well, is. But it, I think it's like these things start brewing before yeah. they pop. Right. Absolutely. Mm hmm. That is very interesting. I think we should also mention that not only is Matt Ruff, who wrote the book, white, but we're white. We are very and white, yes. this show and the book, um, Tackle Race Relations in America, heavily. It's about uh, the Jim Crow era. However, it takes place in the North, which I think is very important that it is a graphic look at racism in Chicago and Massachusetts predominantly, I think. Because growing up, I, I really think it's important to note that we were kind of taught that racism was in the South. Yeah, we were taught that racism was in the South and that, you know, you just, you know, you push that aside because it's over. We, we had Martin Luther King and everything was gravy after that. And very much not. So dang you, Arlington Heights public education system. I, I'm I'm sure and just public education in general. Far beyond that, and I we'll know. Go, I know. We'll <laughs> we'll go against uh, public education a little bit uh, more later on on some of these <laughs> plot points I had never heard of before. But I just think, and also Matt Ruff uh, is white, and it's interesting. I heard that this story basically came out of some conversations he had with his professor and other students when he was at Cornell, where they were talking about, one of the black students was talking about going for a walk in upstate New York, uh, just sort of in the country. And the teacher was like, whoa, I would never do that. I would feel so unsafe. Uh, and he, the more the student talked about it, he was like, you know what? People were looking at me. There were like people with dogs. Like now that I think about it, I don't know why I was naive to feel safe. And so I think Matt Ruff kind of took these conversations and they, you know, percolated until they sort of came out as this because this show tackles the idea of like a sundown town, which is basically you're not allowed to be black outside after sundown or else we're coming for you. Um, so it's pretty, it, this is, this is heavy stuff. The foundation of this show is very, very heavy and needs to be talked about. And yet, it is some of the coolest sci-fi, some of the most interesting horror. And, I mean, I love the sci-fi element to it as well. Yeah, the genre-ness of it. I think it really shows, it showcases just how fun even like you know the i mean it's heavy stuff but man they do such a great job at not getting completely bogged down in all of the you know serious issues that they are tackling no is, because what i what i've really noticed while watching it was that it takes this jordan peele racial horror genre to the next level i think it does a really good job of something fantastically horrifying is happening 
and then cut to the next scene, something horribly racist is happening. Yeah. And I think it just go. I think this is such a, a great drama because it does a great job of getting the point across of being like, this is scary. This is why people are scared. This is why people are uncomfortable. This is why change needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, I've never before everything just felt like it was in the news to me. And this makes it feel more personal. Absolutely. And I think a big credit goes to the way it was shot. Uh, I was watching an interview with the director of photography and he was saying, he was talking about how horror is shot Uh, and horror is usually very grimy. It's very uh, sort of, you know, there's a sort of messiness and uh, chaotic way that it's filmed, uh, usually because it tends to be lower budget. But this, the sort of fantastical monsters ripping off heads horror of it is shot the same way as being chased in a sundown town. Or mm. be it's because all of it is scary. And that I thought was a really compelling point. And you can see it in every frame of it. Well, like, did they um did they shoot the racist stuff like a horror movie, or did they shoot the horror stuff the way they would have shot the other stuff? They shot everything the same. And I think okay. that's what makes it, you know, you shoot the the family drama stuff the same as the uh, racial drama stuff, the same as the very, very, very gross stuff as well. And absolutely, it, and you feel it. It just makes you feel it, it every second. So, a little it, bit about uh, Misha Green, the showrunner. She was a writer on Sons of Anarchy, uh, which is pretty crazy to me. But <laughs> she had just come off of two seasons uh, show running a show called Underground. On was that the CW? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it was about the Underground Railroad. So coming from a heavy show about the Underground Railroad, this seems like a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty intense next step, but yeah. she does seem like the right person to to run this. As someone who has watched it, I would say, Yes, absolutely. She's the right person. I don't agreed. Having not seen anything that she has done, I just know the product in front of me, and I'm like, yeah, this is. I I will follow you. It's one of those kind of statement shows. I feel like, like absolutely. Uh, so a statement a statement show is an understatement. <laughs> nice. Blah. Good wordplay. Good wordplay. Word All right, I think. When it, we have a show this dense, um, sometimes we go episode by episode. Sometimes we just try to hit the big beats. But this show needs a good old exposition dump. For this exposition dump, I have written out an entire summary of the entire arc of the show. And I'm going to say this as fast as I can so that we can get to the meat and potatoes of this mofo that is Lovecraft Country. So, Ian, how, I don't know, how long do you think it's going to take me to get through the entire uh, arc of this show? 
Uh, I'll give you two minutes and 43 seconds. Who? Okay. I think I can do it. I think I can do it. Uh, could you give me minute like markers? Can you time me? Okay. Believe in me. On your mark. Believe in me. Get set. All right. Go. 1950s, we meet Atticus Freeman, a Korean war vet moving back to Sweet Home Chicago to investigate his father's disappearance. Chick travels to the Massachusetts with his uncle George, a travel writer focused on safe travel for black people in America, and friend Letitia, a wayward soul making her own way back home, to look for Tick's father Montrose, an all-too-real run-in with a racist-ass Massachusetts sheriff, and a hyper-violent run-in with vampiric mole creatures set the tone for the season and ultimately lead them to the Braithwaite family manor. The Braithwaites, uh, including siblings Christina and William, have been expecting the Freemans as they lead a secret order called the Sun of Adam that need to sacrifice Tick in order to become immortal because Tick is a direct descendant of the group's founder. Turns out Montrose's disappearance was just a trap, and, but the sacrifice is thwarted and Tick, Letty, and Montrose make their way back to Chicago sans George who died in the escape. That's just the first two. We, make, we go back to Chicago where Letty comes into an inheritance and buys a house in the all-white north side that turns out to be haunted. Christina Braithwaite has survived her family home's destruction and convinces Tick to find missing pages of the Book of Names that will help them decipher the language of Adam, which would help them unlock many dark magical powers. Montrose, Tick, and Letty play Indiana Jones to steal these pages from a booby-trapped crypt while the, where they also find the two-spirit Yahima, who promises to help them put the pieces together. When the family and spirit make their way back to Chicago, Montrose kills Yahima because he doesn't want Tick diving deeper into the magic. Meanwhile, Letty's sister Ruby hooks up with the other Braithwaite, William, who gives her the ability to shapeshift into a white lady, which gives Ruby the ability to get the department store job she's always wanted. Turns out William is Christina, using the same metamorphosis potion which empowers Ruby. Ruby and Christina team slash hook up. We then get a pair of kick-ass character episodes, one about Jia, a Korean woman possessed by a Kumio, a spirit that kills men through sex and steals stoles using a bunch of tails. Jia falls in love with Tick when he's stationed there and has a vision about Tick dying in America while she almost kills him. The next follows Hippolyta, who, while searching for answers about George's death, becomes a universe-jumping mega-badass living many lives. All this time, Letty and Tick fall in love. Letty gets pregnant. Tick finds out before he because he accidentally travels to the future and meets his grown son. Hippolyta's daughter, Diana, becomes possessed by some crazy-ass spirits because of some racist-ass Chicago cops who are also into the magic harnessed by the Sons of Adam. The only way to save Diana is to travel back to the Tulsa Massacre of 1929 and steal the whole book of names, which was burned in a fire from the night. It's a success. Christina has gotten a handle on the language of Adam and plans to sacrifice Tick to become immortal. The season ends with a battle between good and evil as all of our characters come together to defeat Christina. During the sacrificial ceremony, the world is saved, but Tick ultimately perishes in the struggle, putting a tragic bow on a wild, wild ride. 227. 227? Yep. That was good. Thank you. I mean, wow. Only uh, you said that the Kumio steals stoles, but she actually steals their souls, John. So you lose, ultimately. <sighs> I, I'm my head is so light right now that I did not comprehend what you were saying. <laughs> breathe, baby, breathe in the mouth, out the nose. Wait, no, 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 in the nose, out the mouth. No, gross. You have bad breath. Oh my god, that was dizzying. That was pretty good. I think uh, I don't. I don't know if you left out anything crucial. Crucial. Well, that's that's just the main arc. Like, let's let's dig into this. No, well, I I know I'm 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 impressed, and I want to rip you apart and dissect it to pieces, but I don't know if I can. Well, can we talk? Uh, I guess let's start talking about the cast because this cast, yes. top to bottom, is 
incredible. I agree, John. Right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Atticus Freeman. I always want to say Atticus Finch. I know. They do Uh, that on purpose, and I love it. I know. I know. Played by uh, Jonathan Majors, who started off. Did you ever see Last Black Man in San Francisco? I didn't. You need to. I always wanted to, and the cinematography in that movie looks so incredible. It's a pretty, pretty movie. And he gives one of those performances that you're like, yeah, I'm going to see you in everything that I possibly can. Yes, please, and thank you. I think the first time I was exposed to him was in Loki, uh, at the end of Loki, and he's now going to be in the MCU. Mm-hmm. Um, Kang but, the Conqueror. Right. And I've seen him in one or two other things, but he he's really good. He's really, he's, really good. He's so compelling. He, he's so good as an American, I would have assumed he was British. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. No, exactly what do you mean. He's just one of those actors that everything is written fully on his face. And mm. I just, it's a, he gives performances that are so full bodied, but don't feel obnoxious and actory at the same time. Yeah, he, he's grounded. He's grounded mm-hmm. in everything he does. I, I agree. Even though he has to feel extreme emotions. Mm-hmm. It always reads. It always reads. Uh, but I mean, I wouldn't. I would say that about the entire cast of this. Yeah. We have his girlfriend Letty, who's played by Journey Smollett, who you probably know from Friday Night Lights. John. I do know from Friday Night Lights. I've it's... never watched Friday Night Lights, but that's the show, right? Not the movie. Yeah, the show. And she was also in Birds of Prey. Uh, the Harley Quinn movie. Oh, that's too. right. I wanted yeah. to see it. I just didn't. It's good. She's great in it. And she's great here. Both of them Emmy nominated uh, for the show. Yeah, this show was nominated for 20 Emmys, I think. Right. Including this, Best this Drama. I mm-hmm. guess we should also mention that the show was canceled. Was it right before it was nominated for Best Drama or right after? I think it was right before it, it was nominated. Right. It was, mm-hmm. I think so, too. It was like within, I'd say, two weeks, at least a month. And it was really it was like, interesting. Whoa, it's canceled. Whoa, because, it's nominated. Because HBO Max started it reincorporating it into its ads. I remember. Like it's they were like, We're the home of Lovecraft Country. You know that show that got nominated for 20 Emmys that we canceled? Uh, we'll get into oh, that boy. later. Yeah. But no, the two of them are the real drivers of the the show. And I they are such excellent leads. They make everything work. They they make their romance work. This show also just has some truly great and nuanced family dynamics, too, given all the weird stuff that I just spurted out of my face hole. The relationship between Tick and his dad, Montrose, uh, played by the late, great Michael K. Williams. I, I heard, That one hurt when Michael K. Williams died. Oh, absolutely. That, that I really mean, hit me. 
he will, most people will know him as Omar from The Wire. Yeah. Which, John, have you ever seen The Wire? Yeah, I've seen all The Wire. Okay. For some reason, I thought it would have been one of those shows you hadn't seen. No, it took me a while. I had all the DVDs, and then I would watch like the first two episodes of a season, and then I'd forget about it for six months, and then I'd watch the rest of the season yeah. in, over the course of like three days, and it's then I'd do that for all the seasons. The Wire is slower than you'd think it'd be because everyone talks about how great it is. And The Wire has, I don't know, out of five seasons, it probably has four episodes that really make you go, oh my God, you know, like. But what makes it such a great show is the magnifying glass it puts over different spots of society in the city of Baltimore. And it's written by a journalist, which means it's thorough. But anyone tuning in expecting uh, just some cool version of Law and Order, you know, turns it off because it's not what they think it's going to be. And we never know what this show is going to be. Either. That's true. Give it like episode to episode, scene to scene. Yeah, they they cover a lot of ground. I mean, we start with some pretty like kind of traditional adventure stuff, and then we get into what third episode's a haunted house tale, uh, fourth episode's Indiana Jones, fifth episode or National Treasure or National. <laughs> I was gonna reiterate that without acknowledging what you just said (laughs) and that uh, I couldn't do. I could not do that. Uh, But yeah, we get some, we get some multiversal travel. We get some war drama. Yeah, Well, that's, that's mostly done by Hippolyta Mm -hmm. who is played by Ingenue Ellis. Yes. Did you ever see King Richard? I didn't, but I do believe you should keep Ingenue Ellis's name in your mouth because she's incredible. Ingenue. Ingenue. Yeah. She's an Ingenue. It took me a second to see what you were doing there, and uh, nice, and nice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, that supported this. Uh, this last Oscars uh, supporting actress category is just stacked. Was she nominated? Yeah, she was nominated. Oh. It's like her, uh, Ariana DeBose, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Buckley, and fifth person who I can't remember right now. Okay, but man. She's so good in King Richard. She's so good here. I the I, I was watching an interview uh with her and she was just glowing about how Hippolyta was the role she had been waiting for. You know, everything was mm-hmm. preparing her to to be this character. And yeah. the character is I mean, she has plenty of depth to her, but then once she goes on her multiversal journey, they She's like greeted by this big, you know, Afro future alien. She gets to name herself and she decides to be herself again in the Hippolyta that we know her as. And she talks about how that Hippolyta was so small. Like, how can she go back to that life when that version of herself was so small and she's grown so much after that? And, um, Talk about multiverse and identity again. Um, it just that that was just a magical episode. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't know if it was the one that impacted me the most, but I think it was my favorite episode. That arc of her jumping 
life she could have lived to life she could have lived to life she could have lived. Yeah, I would have given... I would have watched an entire series of just that episode of just that character yeah. discovering herself across Actually, all of those different dimensions. You know, uh, the woman that she goes back to be a backup dancer for it's Josephine Baker. Yeah. They're, they're making a series about her. Oh, they're making a Josephine Baker series. Yeah. That's really weird that you just said that. Yeah. Um, although I don't think Hippolyta is going to be in it, but, uh, um, dang, that'd be cool. Yeah. But, but she know, also is like a, at one point she is this uh, warrior queen who is fighting like Confederate soldiers, which is well, just fantastic. Yeah, first she's a warrior cre- queen. Then it merges universe was where she's fighting Confederate soldiers. Yeah. And uh, then she's with George Freeman, who, spoiler alert, dead by then. Yeah. The and... wonderful Courtney B. Vance, though, one of the two Emmy wins of uh, of the show. He was right. he won for guest actor in a drama. And did he, he win for playing Johnny Cochran? Yeah, he won for act. Yeah, he yeah. won for actor in a like a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he as he ought to have. Mm-hmm. Going back to Hippolyta for just one second. The whole episode is called "I Am," and it is about Montrose being discovered as a gay man and tackling with his identity. It's about Atticus discovering a sort of birthmark on his body, and that his one of his relatives has it as well and it kind of shows that he carries magic through his blood and Hippolyta's here finding herself and she has this great speech in it about how this experience taught her how her life before this had been so much about what she was kept in the box she was the version of herself that she saw that white people wanted her to be that society wanted her to be, that George wanted her to be. And Mm -hmm. even in this, it's not a flashback. They have an interaction, even though he's dead. It's like in another, it's in the multiverse thing where he admits that he kept her smaller than she deserved to be because it meant when he was away, he knew she was home and safe. Yeah. And that was just a really powerful episode about identity. I, I mean, I guess we were talking about how everything ever all at once was so unique with that. And here we are drawing a direct connection, but Hey, they can both be unique. They can both be unique. They can both be effective and groundbreaking. They moved me both of them in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just the idea of knowing yourself and enjoying being where you are is such a powerful message for me i don't know yeah i mean just personally i've always said that the only age i ever felt my age was 25 i felt like perfectly young perfectly kind of an adult perfectly like i could grab you know just take the world for my own and i could just do anything and it was like very young and fun and and nuts. And uh, now I'm 30. I've got my health back after a long journey, long health journey I've had a part of that. If you know me, I've talked your ear off of about, I'm sure. And I am married and I feel so, I'm so happy. I feel creatively fulfilled. I feel personally fulfilled. And I see what I was missing by being miserable for years or putting myself in a box for years. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, just get a room with yourself. My God. Right now, I could. I think you. I think you and you would have a wonderful evening together. All I need is a mirror. We should also talk about uh, Ruby, who is Letty's sister. She is a singer. She is eventually someone that transforms via a very gory process of her skin melting off. Mm-hmm. And the first time that happens, that is shocking. That yeah. is so shocking. Uh, stomach churned uh, deeply when that happened. But she transforms uh for at first un, unknowingly and sort of against her will she does it again though uh purposefully into a white woman in order to and sh- what she does with that power she goes to Marshall Fields in Chicago and gets a job because that was her dream that was her dream she and she the the one time she saw the yeah she saw the one other uh black woman on the floor and she's like well I'm never going to get this job because they're never going to have two black women on a on a show floor at any given time, which is just heartbreak. Like she, she plays the the defeat so well. She plays the sort of the power that comes from it so well. Oh, I guess this just this is just something that goes for every character. It's a real feat of character development when you never you don't always ag- agree with what a character is doing, but you always understand why they're doing it. And with a yeah. show this sprawling. To be able to give that that gift to every single character is remarkable. I think there is one glaring place where that isn't the case, and we will talk about that later. Okay. But otherwise, I agree. And if we sit here praising everyone for their performance, we will not be done with this podcast anytime <laughs> soon because top to bottom, the cast is incredible. Really quick, I just want to point out the extra in the bowler hat in episode four, scene six, uh, walking <laughs> across the street. Really just believable strides. Um, <laughs> I assume he was really overdoing it. Yeah, just, uh, you know, looked at his watch and I was like, that, that guy's late. I don't know where he's going, but he's late. And you could see it. And I just yeah, believed he- him wholeheartedly. If an extra is taking the focus, you they're doing their job. Yeah. They they made it happen. Because they're supposed to distract the viewer from what's going on. <laughs> Although when I was an extra in the Deuce season one, which I was in a lot of that season, I definitely did try to do that. And I did succeed once or twice. So Hey, you got kudos you got to on, me. Ian had one line and it was Oh. No, it was whoa. And actually, that was the one time I was not looking for attention. I was just strutting. I was feeling really good in my 70s costume. I had my long hair. I was flowing. I was strutting in my uh, high tops. And they just did a close-up on the camera of me and um, caught me saying that. And then they didn't have to pay me for it because technically I volunteered the line. Thanks a lot, SAG. Anyway, let's talk about uh, Gia. Oh, wait, we didn't talk about who plays uh, Ruby. Uh, Wunmi Mosaku, who also was in, who was also in Loki. Is she it Musaku the... or Musaka? Musaku. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she was also in Loki. She was great in it. And she is so good at being American, she's British. I can confirm that. <laughs> uh, and... Is there any other character you want to talk about right now or uh 
Gia, she's the uh, Atticus's love in Korea that ends up being a, what's the word again? Uh, Kumio. A Kumio, Kumio, (laughs) which is a super frightening sex monster. And she wields great power. And uh, eventually she realizes it comes with great responsibility. (laughs) Eventually. Gia, Peter Parker, tomato, tomato. We all remember that part in Far From Home where Peter Parker is uh, using his uh, spider webs to put the into people's eyes, uh, eat their souls, and, yeah, see how they die, which is a beautiful thing. It's also lived their entire life. Oh, yeah. So when yeah. she's having sex with them, all of her tails go into their eyes and in their body, and she sees their entire life and sees how they die, which is right then. They yeah. explode on top of her. <laughs> But messy cleanup. Messy, messy cleanup. Messy, messy. Get a mop. Uh, and we have Christina Braithwaite, who is the white witch of the group. Uh, she wields great magic. She is the main uh, antagonist of the group, even though she also saves their lives plenty of times and develops quite the steamy romantic relationship with Ruby. Yes, she does. Uh, she does so first as William. She, her brother William, who is just out of uh, Aryan Central casting. <laughs> I guess they both are. They both are. They yeah, both are. they both are. But yeah, she uses that same metamorphosis to act as as William. We la- learn later that William is uh, just kind of comatose and hooked up to a machine for <laughs> the entire show. And she's just like stealing his blood or something. Yeah. So she has sex with Ruby as a man and as a woman. Mm-hmm. Who who here can say they've done that? Who? I I don't know. I cannot. I guess there are some people out there that can say that. Yes, there are. I think it's time to give out some dunzos. I agree, John. Right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the least, it could be the weirdest, it could be the wettest and wildest. Whatever it is, we have decided that these elements of these shows deserve our recognition. Uh, With so much happening in Lovecraft Country, there are quite literally thousands of awards that we could give out, but we have narrowed... It down to two each. Uh, so, Ian, what are you giving your first Dunzo Award to? My first Dunzo Award goes to the scariest monster in the series, which is Ooh. the Bobos. Oh, the Bobos. Well, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just keep to fantasy here. <laughs> Otherwise, it won't be fun. Yeah. Um... The Bobos are terrifying. Absolutely. And uh, I'm sorry, what was the girl, the little girl's name? Did we? Uh, D, Diana. Oh, Diana. Uh, So Diana's uh, Hippolyta's daughter. Hippolyta and George's daughter. Jada Harris. And she is an incredible young actress. Mm -hmm. And episode eight is really the episode that shines a light on her. 
and she has to fight magic-wielding police who cast this spell on her, and they actually spit on her face in order to cast the spell on her. <gasps> oh, yeah. And sidebar, this whole episode is... Emmett Till's funeral. The plot of the episode is that Emmett Till was one of her friends. Mm-hmm. So she is grieving hard this entire episode, not to mention her mother has disappeared because yeah. unknown to her, she's having a multidimensional space adventure. But did, she's uh, afraid, she's scared, she's sad. Uh-huh. Did you realize that uh, Emmett Till appeared earlier in the season? No, really? In episode yeah. one or two? Probably. Uh, I think it was in one of the, I think it was in the third episode, the Haunted House episode. There's a scene where uh, Dee and a group of friends are doing like a Ouija board. In the board. basement. Yeah. Oh, he's and one, one of, of those, kids. And there's, he asks a question That's like, uh, what's going to happen on my trip? And you're like, oh God. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh boy. That's, mm-hmm. uh, That's brutal. The world's worst Easter egg. Yeah. Um, so she's grieving. She's going through a lot. And these cops put a spell on her and she doesn't know what it is at first because she doesn't really know what magic is either i mean she's been kept in the dark for so much of this uh the these series of events and that's the thing i think that makes this particular plot line more like it just because of her unwillingness and her you know, just lack of understanding about it. Like most of the other danger is the characters putting themselves in that situation willingly, almost always for good causes. But D just gets picked up off the street and straight up spit on and then gets chased around by those Bobos. She's thrown into it. So she doesn't know what's going on. And then she's in the bathroom and, uh, she looks at the book Uncle Tom's Cabin and there is a girl on the inside cover? No, is no, it no. like inside the, illustration? Like don't the, judge a book by its cover. Cover. <laughs> There's a girl on the cover <laughs> that mutates into a very scary face and they start to use this song over and over again during it. And it's like, uh, let me in. It's this knock. It's like, let me in. Let me in. And Dee's running around paranoid. And then all of a sudden, two versions of this girl with their hairs like red, their nails are long, their eyes are yellow. They look like uh, the underground people in Us. Okay, yes. Yes, I, I, I can see that comparison. And I've got to say, kudos to the makeup and the whoever designed that character, because it would easily have looked have looked bad, frankly, with the kind of makeup they're having or whatever. It could have looked really low quality, but the performances of these two girls are I don't know if they're women that just look younger, that are incredible acrobats and dancers or something like that, but they're twisting around they're twisting their limbs they're looking creepy they're walking funny they're basically chasing d around at it's faster than a mummy it's slower like, than a zombie reminded me a lot of it follows. slower than a fast zombie sure did you ever see it follows no it's a lot like that uh where it's a constant presence that mm-hmm. like you can run away from, but like it's never going to stop following you. 
Right. It's like you can't go to sleep. No. Um, and they were, and no one else could see them. And <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was the scariest to me, scarier than the uh, demonic, uh, beasts that come out of the ground and eat people. Thousand eyes and all that stuff. Uh, and then too, at the way that that ends where, uh, Montrose is just trying to hold her down because he's worried about her and thinks that she's just mentally unwell. And you're like, no, Michael they're K. Williams at her. Michael K. Williams, yeah. no, let her go. Let her run. <laughs> what are you doing? Because uh, well, she's physically fighting them, and he comes in, and it looks like she's just thrashing around. Yeah. Um, and she's in such pain that it would be understandable that he would uh, think that. God, so that's my first Dunzo. Well, in a similar vein, uh, my first Dunzo goes to Gnarliest CGI. Oh, yeah. And I have to give that to the skin shedding oh, uh, yeah. sequences. My good gracious. I So this refers to the transformations that Ruby makes from uh, herself into uh, the white lady and vice versa. I knew generally, you know, when we look at transfigurations, metamorphoses and things, it's usually like, oh, you look at a shadow and you see that they, and then they've turned into their final form. Something about the way that the flakes of skin were being ripped off of uh, our, our Ruby made me ill. I have never come so close to throwing up. Uh, really? Watching. I can't, th- I'm literally like kind of like, it, it's like in my chest and in my throat right now talking about it. Like, hi. There was something so. I guess it's like a, I don't know. It's just like a skin thing for me. I don't. I don't like like scabs, and I don't like like the, the ripping and the giggle. So there was something about, and it was just like the whole body. I mean, kudos to the VFX team though, because goodness gracious, they made that look so real and bloody and there was a similar sequence uh later on in the show where one of the characters i think it was tick had to cut off a piece of a guy's uh chest skin uh mm-hmm. which also gave me similar sort of like i don't like this but good for you show for making me feel squeamy because that doesn't that doesn't happen very often for me so i and I don't think all of the CGI in the show works. Uh, there's some scenes, especially with like fire a couple times where I'm like, uh, I just don't, I just don't think it looks very good, but that does. And it made me sick, sick, sick. So give it, give it up for CGI for just destroying my stomach and meals. John, to that point, the first time that her skin melts off of her, it's so gruesome and it's so slow and later times you get more used to it and it's quicker, but you also don't know what's happening to her, which makes yeah. it that much scarier. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely the grossest part of the show to me. Maybe, well, I don't know later in uh it's either that episode or the next one, Ruby kills somebody by sodomizing them with a high heel Oh my God! Yeah, and that may have been the most disturbing moment. You got to be more open to sodomy, my friend. Um, uh, 
<laughs> that's that's on me. That's me yeah, that's on shaming. you. That's you kink shaming. Don't yuck somebody's yum. Murder? Murder don't, is somebody's yum. Don't yuck the yum. We all we all have our fantasies. Anyway. What's your second uh, dunzo? So my second dunzo is going to go to best spoken word element of the show. You monster. You monster. You're going to do it too? That was exactly what I was going to do. Okay. I'm sure we're going to have the same one. But I don't know. We can share this one. Yeah, let me do mine first, and then you do your lesser one. Uh-huh. Um, so Misha Green talked about how, first of all, the use of music in the show is is incredible. It Even uses like old that. music. It uses new music. It really bridges uh, genres well. The even the outro music, like Sinner uh, Man, that uh, cover of that. Oh, of course. Is uh, so evocative. And the musical, even evocative like the one moment, John, just the the creepiness of it and the the sadness of it. And I just it, it like I was excited when the music would come on to it because it just felt like a perfect sort of uh, uh, exit lewd for what I had just watched. Uh and now I'm blanking, but there's even some like nice musical moments uh, too. Um, there's like a sing along in the in the finale, too, on a on a road trip on the car ride, mm, mm-hmm. and even that's just like beautiful. But sorry, so what is your what is your spoken word moment? Well, first I'm I was sure. talking about how Misha Green talked about how spoken word was how she used it as music because. Okay, so personally. One of my favorite things about The Sopranos is there's two or three times where they use spoken word in it um, as an over, as an audio overlay to the scene or the montage that's going on. And it creates like an eerie effect. I don't know what it is about that. Spoken word is a type of, you know, a type of performance that when done well is about as perfect, I think, as art can be. And when it is done poorly, it is the most grating and pompous thing that you could possibly imagine. Absolutely. I Mm. completely agree. I went to a jazz show recently where I went to a jazz show where this guy (laughs) did a jazz version of Dear Prudence. And we all kind of agreed that we really enjoyed his performance in every other song. But when he sang Dear Prudence, we wanted to punch him in the face. (laughs) He was just so punchable in that moment. It was like, please stop. You're so full of yourself. To open yourself (laughs) to that kind of visceral reaction, which uh, like most spoken word, a lot of spoken word uh, can do. Yes, Uh, absolutely. And yet to still persevere and create such beautiful spoken word is remarkable to me. So Misha just thinks that um, spoken word really bridges time better than music can. Like music can bring up a feeling or an emotion, but spoken word from a different era can really, you know, it, I don't think it doesn't even draw parallels. It, it uh, makes them touch, makes parallel lines touch, right? (laughs) Just made, just gives him a kiss. Just yeah, two parallel lines kissing for just a, <laughs> just one brief 
beautiful moment. And again, going back to episode eight, when she finally fights the Bobos, uh, they play a speech from then 11-year-old Naomi Wadler, who they play the part of her speech where she says, I'm here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper, whose stories don't lead on the evening news. I represent the African-American women who are victims of gun violence, who are simply statistics instead of vibrant, beautiful girls and full of potential. For far too long, these names, these black girls and women, have been just numbers. I am here to say, never again for those girls too. I am here to say that everyone should value those girls too. And there might be a little bit more to it in, in the actual clip, but it's a really incredible moment where she's finding her power. She's finally facing the Bobos. She just told off the magic cop that put the curse on her. She's raging in the best way. And they play that over the the scene. And it just gave me chills. It 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 really did. It really told me everything I needed to know about what was going on. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great choice. I have a different spoken word moment. Woo! Dueling spoken words. Yeah. Let's go, John. Rock'em, sock'em, spoken word moments. You, you can't see this, but Ian is taking off his sweater, ready to fight. That's he is, right. He literally said rock'em. Now I'm flexing. Now I'm yeah, flexing. I could see I'm it. Flexing. I could the de- uh, double flex. The, the definition is just so intimidating. Well, on the left one, there's definition. Not, not on the right one as much. That's funny. I did notice that and didn't want to comment on it. I am working on it. <laughs> so my best spoken word moment uh, comes from the second episode, which would be the, the titular uh, spoken word moment, which is uh, the reading of uh, Whitey on the Moon by Gil oh, Scott yeah. Heron. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the second episode's called Whitey's on the Moon. Uh, it's the episode where where George dies, where uh, Tick is starting to be sacrificed, essentially, uh, by the Braithwites, which then gets interrupted uh, by uh, the uh, an ancient uh, spirit of his uh, family. But during this sort of sacrifice scene where the sons of Adam have all gathered together to give the Braithwaite uh, patriarch uh, and uh, played by uh, Tony Goldwyn too. This uh, sort of Tony Goldwyn, you would, you would recognize him from a million things. Okay. You saw him in network. <gasps> Network's one of my top three favorite movies. Yeah. Well, he was in the stage one. The, the oh, play. who was he in that? The third lead. I can't remember the guy's name. He was the oh. guy that wasn't Brian Cranston and not oh Tatiana Maslany. Yeah. He, that's the guy. That's the guy. That's the guy that was sacrificed. That's Jonathan how Majors. I recognize him, of yes. course. Yes. Because they put him in older makeup and they I do. knew his they face. Age him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I did not think he was very good in network. Wow. All right. I'm but glad we, also, we made it there. He was up against a, a phenomenal performance in Brian Cranston. And also, he was playing the William Holden character from the movie, but they gave a lot of William Holden's good lines to Brian Cranston in the play. Gotcha. So, not necessarily his fault, but kind of his fault. Yeah. 
Well, one thing that is his fault is that he's trying to kill our uh, main protagonist in this uh, very big sacrificial It's not his fault. That's the writing's fault. (laughs) That's what the writing is for. And this scene should be, like, visually, it should be one of those, like, big sort of orchestral, um, uh, like, lots of, like, beam noises and shooting up to the skies and screaming and torturous stuff and chanting and stuff. And you get some of that in the background. But the spoken word poem that gets played over by Gil Scott Heron, um, Whitey on the Moon, uh, just some, I, I won't do a full thing, but, uh, you know, here's just the beginning of it. A rat done bit my sister Nell while Whitey on the Moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the Moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the Moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. And that's the tone that is sort of set over this thing where white people are literally stealing the life from this black man that is being literally like, I mean, just visually almost like crucified in front. And it is so, it's such a powerful choice. I had never heard the the poem before watching it for the first time. Oh really? And I, yeah, I, I had heard like of Whitey on the Moon just as a cultural, but I'd never listened to it mm. all the way through. And yeah, it just really had a big impact on me. It was such, a, and that's what the show does so well in general too, is the big bold choices that it takes stylistically. Um, it is not a for the intimate family dynamics for the talks about identity that we've had and your place in society it is such a big 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 show in every one of the interesting tidbits that i heard from uh so that's my second dunzo uh well that that dunzo also that that illustrates kind of what i was talking about earlier about the racial horror drama genre Mm -hmm. and what it does so well is that it's taking this scene, it's a horror scene. It's our protagonist is in duress. He's being uh, sacrificed. He's a human sacrifice. And they play something from real life over it. Mm-hmm. And that just, that's exactly what they do well. Exactly. So going to the bigness of the show, I, I want to take, can we talk about like the production design of the no, show? Skip it. Okay. So I say we just twiddle our thumbs for the next uh, 20 minutes and we'll see. Okay, here's a fun bit of trivia, though. How many individual sets do you think they built for this show? This is something I learned from the documentary. All right, I'm trying to think of all of the different locations. Because we got the house, we got two apartments, we got the observatory, we got the destroyed house, we've got... Uh, the police, you know what? I bet it's lower than you'd think. And I'm going to say 20, 162. I was close. You were very close. Yeah. In the vast scheme of things, bring in the probability of everything everywhere all at once and the entire universe. I was close. You were very close. Yeah. Let's let's dive into one of your other timelines and uh, talk to your variant who got it right. In another or at least... timeline, I got it right. Yeah, exactly. Got it there. Uh, 
Yeah, 162 sets. That was wow. that was part of the conversation where they were talking about like why they wanted to light it differently than any or shoot it like differently than any horror movie. They're like, we've got these amazing sets that our our team has built, and so many of them too, with so many extras. Can you imagine? So obviously it came out in the middle of COVID, you know, August 2020. Can you imagine if they tried to film this during COVID? Like there, there's no way this show would have looked the way it did. No, especially so. if it was like pre-vaccine COVID, you know, yep. some of those shows, like I think I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but season three of what we do in the shadows is just so COVID shot. It just hurts me to watch. It's funny, yeah. but it's not the same, you know? No. Yeah. And, you know, there's some big, like, outdoor stuff, too. Um, like, the the way that they did uh, Tulsa, to uh, 1929 Tulsa. One of the things I really admired about it was, obviously, you know, the fall, you know, the Black Wall Street falling and the horrible, horrible tragedies that happened there in 1929. They, when they were talking about what they created, they still wanted to have those moments before, you know, all the all the stuff happened, all the murders happened, and the city burned up. Where they wanted to show still like black wealth and black people thriving, and what was, what was what the what the white people that burned the city down were threatened by, which was just some sort of success, and mm-hmm. it was. And they were all talking about, too, like all the actors and stuff. And Michael K. Williams, too, was specifically said that was the toughest thing to do was to shoot those scenes in Tulsa in 1929. But what they did was they built out an entire city block, like, and they looked at Main Street and they said, you know, we're going to try to be as accurate as we can here because this matters. Like, we need to give this the respect that it deserves. Mm-hmm. But they also apparently shot on a street outside of Atlanta that was like one of the buildings was like across the street or something from Martin Luther King Jr.'s childhood home or like it's one of his residences or something like that. And so there was all this wow. history built into this town and the set that they had built. It was it was just astounding. Um, and then Jada Harris, who played Diana, the, the younger the youngest cast member. She talked about how she had never heard of, uh, they call them the Tulsa riots in the show sometimes, but it's a massacre. It is. I mean, they were bombed. They were murdered. Their houses were set on fire. It is um, one of the worst things you could imagine. And you didn't uh, know about it. I didn't know about it until Watchmen. Jada Harris had never heard of it. Me and you had never heard of it until Watchmen. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, we were almost 30 when that came out. Yeah. And what a failure on our education system to lose yeah. something like for us to hear nonstop about the Pinkerton riots and never hear about this is yeah. absolutely it's bad. It's very, yeah. very bad. It takes a very critical lens of American history, this show. But it also takes the moments to it 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 takes the moments to celebrate the family and not to be completely I again just the fact that this show isn't the 
biggest freaking bummer in the entire world is uh, a feat to me. Absolutely. Uh, I also really love to just the respect that it gave. Uh, there was, uh, they were talking in this documentary too about uh, this photographer of the time, uh, Gordon Parks, who kind of created, who, who kind of shot some of these um, uh, sort of iconic images of segregation in Chicago and, you know, the, the, you know, the N-word being chalked on the sidewalk with an arrow pointed mm. towards the house that uh, somebody had moved into on the north side. And they were looking at these photos and they were finding these sort of ways to acknowledge this very instrumental art that captured the time, too, um, to pay homage. The level or of... homage. Sure. The level of detail that's just in this show every every bit like the so one of the big things it as part of the magic is the use of the language of uh the language of adam which they i guess they created too oh and it's based it's based on sumerian oh okay yeah and uh there's a journey smollett was saying in an interview she was like i was dreaming in the language of adam because i was trying to get so immersed in like talking and speaking it and i mean it makes sense it's the oldest written language there is so mm-hmm. that they would just take the most ancient thing they could find yeah be like all right let's make a language out of this that makes sense but the drawing of the symbols the you know the just the bigness of it with all the little stuff mhm <sighs> Wild. Well, John, there is so, so, so much more to talk about uh, this show, and we will. But first, let's take a quick commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. So, Ian... Before we get into why this show is canceled, I have a question for you. Please. So I watched the show when it aired. What kept you from watching it? I'm just curious because it just seems like it would be something that is so up your alley that I, I just wonder if that, as since we're talking about why it got canceled, I'm wondering why. I was some... part of the problem because I didn't watch it. I get yes. it. I get yes. the undertow of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess... I thought it looked cool because the poster had a giant squid in it or something, which uh, it was kind of a tease because that was only in the opening sequence. Um, But it looked cool. And then it was something I meant to watch. And then people, I heard mixed reviews about it. Mm. I heard that it was like weird and kind of, I'm going to bleep this, f***ed up. And we have a friend, Robbie, that only saw the sodomizing scene. And right. What a what a scene to walk in on. Yeah. And it was like there was some online chatter just uh, that it was like divisive or something like that. Gotcha. And I think emotionally coming off the heels of the summer of 2020, I just I couldn't be there at that moment. I couldn't uh, I couldn't do whatever I I couldn't be a part of whatever I felt like it was saying. And uh, it was too, I don't know, too soon, I guess, too close. Um, And it wasn't until we started talking about starting one and done again that I 
considered watching it and learned a little bit more about it. And I'm so glad that I did. And I'm so glad that you saw it originally and told me you loved it mm-hmm. and insisted because a little a peek behind the curtain, we have not um, recorded these first 10 episodes in the order that we are going to release them in. And I've had a couple conversations about one and done shows when I'm I'm sort of pitching this podcast to people. And they're like, well, what's one that should have? And I go, Lovecraft. Lovecraft Country. Country. Yeah. Lovecraft Country was the one that got done the dirtiest. More than Freaks and Geeks, more than Firefly, more than The Tick. The original The Tick, not Amazon Prime's (laughs) The Tick. Um, More than, I can't even think of other like well-known one. Was Joey Two Seasons? Joey was two seasons. Yeah. Right. And that got more t- seasons than Lovecraft Country, which is yeah. a sin. It is. Uh, but- so what uh, What did it? Let's, let's get into it. What brought down this massive endeavor? The statement from uh, the HBO people at the time. When you make the decision to not go forward with a show, it's usually a confluence of factors. And that was the case here. It has to be something we think makes sense for us. Uh, In this case, we couldn't get there. I don't think it would be fair to point at any one particular thing. I think that the work uh, Misha Green did and the recognition that it got, this doesn't change any of that. So this was a statement that was shortly made after. So post-cancellation, also post-Emmy nominations, too. Mm -hmm. Right. So this this was an HBO exec talking about it. And that's really the most we've gotten out of them. They have a pretty boilerplate. Uh, announcement that it was canceled about like, sorry, it was great, but we're not moving forward. And then that is really the most otherwise that we get out of HBO. And frankly, it's just society has been trying to piece together why it was canceled. So my answer is twofold. One of which is the only taste of season two that we would have gotten is from Misha Green herself on Twitter for several months after writing season one, which they didn't even know if they were going to do a season two. They set out thinking maybe it could be a limited series or something, but we're just talking about what would season two look like. The season one finale is a pretty closed loop in general. It does, but it like feels it opens like some a- stuff up, like for sure. The fact that magic is taken away from all white people in the world uh, at the oh, very end of the right. show. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, the main antagonist is killed. The main protagonist is killed. There is a lot of finality to the finale. And yet, to me, it does feel like a season finale and not a series finale. We usually talk season and series in the same context with the show. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but not not right now. So her and a couple writers went out about the world. And she's like, come back in a couple months and we're going to start working on season two whatever that might be. And they wrote a 75-page Bible to what it it would have or could have been. And when it was canceled, Misha Green shared a picture of the map of the United States in season two. And the United States would have been called the Sovereign States of America. And the label at the top of the picture, it's called The Next Generation. And it sort of alludes to the fact that season two would have been well after season one. There are four regions in this United States map. The West is called the Tribal Nations of the West. 
the Northeast, pretty much New England, is called Jefferson Commonwealth. The whole middle section of the country, Northern Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, all the way through West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, is called the White Lands. Hmm. And there's an X in Texas, and there is a red circle in Southern Pennsylvania. Neither of these things are explained. Pretty much the entire South is called the New Negro Republic. So this is all we have to go off of. So I listened to an interview with Dr. Greg Carr, who is Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. He breaks down this map, which we get from Misha Green, which I highly recommend everybody look at. In the middle is something called the White Lands, because a zombie outbreak comes out of the events of season one. Which Makes total th- sense. Yeah. Right, because there aren't any zombies in season one. So, of course, that's the natural progression that season two would take. Yeah. We all saw that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the outbreak starts in this part of Texas that Dr. Carr talks a lot about how it's significant because it's known as Texia or Texia, which would have been a free slave state pre-America going to Texas and taking it over. So it's kind of a symbol of white oppression in a way. And the South would have been known as the New Negro Republic, which brings us to Dr. Carr talks a lot about how season one deals with racist history, right? It takes place in 1950s. And therefore, as a country... Just like we were taught growing up, as white people, we can feel kind of safe. We can say, that was in the past. That was them. That's not me. Mm-hmm. This part of America is over, and we are now in the uh, racial golden age. Mm-hmm. We all hold hands. It's exactly. Kumbaya, constantly. And so the New Negro Republic represents what he calls Afrofuturism which is, he says, kind of threatening to white people because if you go back to slavery, if you consider the fact that England, America, white people waged war on Africa and brought all these prisoners of war to the Americas and made them slaves, if a war was over in a normal war, the POWs would be released back to their own country. But in this case... The POWs were released, and they just had to stay where they were. Mm -hmm. So there has always been an idea, some sort of push to get a sovereign or political black state, black region, where it felt like everyone was safe, more in control of things. It was more about their voice because clearly they felt repressed uh, everywhere else, which is what the show is about. So, if you take Afrofuturism into account, it is actually threatening to white people because it plants the seed in our heads that something is being taken away from us. If everyone else is going to get a bigger piece of the pie, then we're going to have less of the pie. And therefore, we're threatened, and therefore, we're uncomfortable, and therefore, it comes out in a lot of weird ways. Mm -hmm. And if this show in season one was already pushing the envelope, It was already pushing everybody's racial tendons to the stretching them as far as they could stretch in a time when everyone is already 
feeling as stressed as they could probably possibly be, then everyone's just really pushed to their limits. They've really pushed Americans' racial history to its limits. I think, too, it's also like pushing this like creative team and this cast to its limits, too. Yes, Th- that, is, that, is, that is the second part, John. Oh, okay, believe sorry. Me, I'm not even to part two. <laughs> I- I'm almost to part two. But basically, okay. it's threatening to people. Afrofuturism is threatening to people. And so HBO would not have been comfortable pushing the envelope even further, pushing half of their fan base even further, you know, risking numbers, risking blowback. And the second part of this would be that there was blowback. This show was kind of divisive in the black and African-American community from what I can gather, from friends I've talked to, from people in the industry, from the internet. It dealt with these things like Emmett Till's horrific murder with Tulsa 1929, the massacre that happened, and all these other historical oppressions. And people felt like the imagery of it was not treated responsibly, right? It Mm. was triggering for some people. This is a polarizing show. People love it or hate it. People, Mm -hmm. I think me and you, we learned from it. It really pushed us emotionally to our limits in a way that we got a lot out of. Mm-hmm. I think other people, maybe it pushed them to their limits where it shut them down, where they yeah. didn't want or couldn't handle more of this. I can and totally that includes that. the cast. Mm-hmm. I was watching an interview with the full cast where, oh gosh, who plays George Freeman again? Um, uh, Courtney B. Vance. It was um, a SAG interview of all of them. And Michael K. Williams was talking about his emotional issues that arose while filming this. He was pushed to his emotional limits. And he talks about how he went into therapy afterwards very openly. But Courtney B. Vance kind of alludes to that maybe production had to stop for a little while to accommodate Michael K. Williams's uh, emotional trauma that he was going through. He's famously an addict. He has, you know, he's he's dealing with a lot, and this part took a lot out of him. The rest of the cast had to take care of themselves, too. And actually, you can't find a lot about this beyond surface level them talking about how difficult it was. But murmurings in the industry are that this was very emotionally taxing on them as rewarding as the show was for them to work on, it may have been, a, frankly, an HR issue. I mean, you can't Shelley Duvall people anymore, no, which is, of course, what the hell is his name? Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick made Shelley Duvall do like 120 takes of one scene and seriously broke her yeah. on that set. And you, are, you can't do that anymore. Okay, especially not on a flagship show like this or a premiere show like this with such a high quality cast with, frankly, an HBO treasure like Michael K. Williams, who has starred for them on multiple shows. And basically the murmurings are that he relapsed. 
he died of a heroin overdose caused by fentanyl with people say succumb to his addiction. But personally, I classify those things as he was poisoned. I don't think it's exactly the same. But mm -hmm. basically, people, some people blame Michael K. Williams's death on this show and yeah. uh, other emotional trauma. And I think HBO just kind of couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I You could see it anytime you see interviews with the cast and stuff. They, like, there was a, in this documentary, Misha Green talked about when they finished, it felt like a feat. Mm -hmm. Like, it felt like they had accomplished something. And that comes from a lot of hard work and a lot of, frankly, probably turmoil. Like, that is... absolutely. It's a, it's tough. It's tough to like, you could just see the, you know, how, how beat up, like some people just must have, it, 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 again, this is me projecting on what I, what I've seen from some beyond the, behind the scenes stuff. So take with that what you will. But yeah, I, it, when you have that kind of cast that is so emotionally invested in telling this, broad and big of a story like you are asking so much of them uh constant in, intuitively too you just by the nature of the story that you are telling i and, listened to an interview with wunmi mosaku who talked about how the things they dealt with in the show were stories that her mom and her aunts or whatever had that were just stories to her and how going through this in the show emotionally brought that family trauma up and yeah, that's she the thing had with to inherited, deal with it. The show is about inherited trauma and all the things that have been stolen from you over mm -hmm. generations. And so you might, as you start to dive into it, I'm sure there was that feeling of, this hat the the stuff that is being dealt with in the show has had ramifications for hundreds of years uh it going into the past and affecting my family and have you seen the uh, the reparations episode of uh, Atlanta no not yet it's it's incredible the the season premise three of, right yeah season three of Atlanta is completely off the rails and I'm loving every second of it the the episode follows uh Justin Bartha of the hangover fame who he is he real or he's found out that his family like uh, used to own slaves and it's at a time when a bunch of uh, of uh, black people are suing white people for the trauma that they had that their ancestors had inflicted on their families like individual members and it's all about him sort of trying to come to terms with like this idea of yeah they should get it what they deserve, but am I the one that's supposed to give it to them? And it's that sort of bouncing act, but it ends in this really just amazing image where basically, you know, Justin Barthes' character gets fired. He's at this point where he has to give 15% of his paycheck every time to uh, this woman that sued him. And there's a series of white uh, waiters essentially at a restaurant that are doing something similar. And there's this shot at the end of all of these white waiters serving black customers at this really fancy restaurant and it's so 
it's just and there's these speeches in there about you know what what did we take when we were um when from our from our ancestors from our families and what was taken from other people right and what did we inherit in, exactly and so yeah i can't imagine dealing with that on a daily basis making the show and no i love i love the product i am really happy that it exists and it breaks my heart honestly to hear the toll that it see the long-term toll that it took and I mean, Michael, I, I just, Michael K talked about how he was like, just because they yell cut doesn't mean your body knows to stop. He's like, yeah. you, when you really work yourself up, when you really feel those emotions, when you really go through some of those things, when you're running and yelling and crying and, uh, you know, hitting people and being hit and covered in blood or whatever it is it doesn't stop just because it calls it they call cut and it uh did not stop for michael no yikes so john would you renew it (laughs) i feel like i'm gonna cry um i would renew i would renew the show i want to see more of it i I want to see more from Misha Green. I would, I think honestly that Afrofuturism angle would be really, really compelling to watch. I just love the world building too. For a show that as, for a show that is so dense and can be so confusing at times, it does a good job of like getting you along for the ride. And -hmm. I could see that working for pretty much any scenario. So I would absolutely renew. Hey, Ian, would you renew? I wouldn't do what HBO did and cancel it. (laughs) I would renew. Give me Uh, a heart attack there, bud. Yeah, I know. I loved it. Um, It's really good. It's a really good show. The only only gripe I have with it is that at the end of episode, was it the National Treasure episode four? (laughs) I think it's four. Yeah, it's four. They go on this whole national treasure journey adventure. They go into a museum and they find a key and they, they find steal a the Declaration of Independence. And, right. And uh, the password was Valley Forge the whole time. <laughs> and uh, they go through a lot. So they meet this two spirited native individual who is both genders, but also there's like something more to it than that something more magical about it something more spiritual to it of uh i don't know maybe it rep they represent something some kind of harmony or something like that okay the cast goes through a lot to find this person and bring them back home and then all of a sudden michael k williams's character just kills them at the end of the episode and the reason is that he didn't want his son to dive more into magic, but it really felt like they went through a lot to get something that could have been amazing that ultimately went nowhere Mm -hmm. and was a disappointment because I would have liked to have seen a lot uh, more from that character. And as it turns out, the internet was also very upset about this 
Um, part of it was that there's a lot of depictions of violence against Native women and or peoples. And when they are depicted, they're being killed. So that was upsetting that they finally got, there was this great character introduced and then immediately just suffered. Also naked, very much felt more like it was, they were presented like an animal, not a, mm-hmm. a person. And yeah. then it went nowhere. So they had a big opportunity and squandered it. And Misha Green actually apologized for this mm. and said it probably was not the right way to do it. But what she was trying to do was that she was trying to show how hurt people hurt people, oppressed people oppress people, yeah. which is intrinsic to the DNA of this show. The mm-hmm. families, the two families are oppressing each other. You know, Ruby and Letty were oppressed by their swindler mom and mm-hmm. they hurt each other. Tick and his, his father was abusive to him because his father was abusive to him, yeah. you know, and Christina Braithwaite and Ruby get together because they're sort of a like, hey, we're women, we're in this together angle, not a I'm white, you're black situation. And yeah. there are all of these intersecting, interwoven, um, clashing aspects to every character. Mm-hmm. You know, a wild thing I didn't realize until I dug Did it make your I, heart sing? Of course. I heard that uh, Christina was uh, gender swapped from the source material. Oh. Yeah, so Christina's character would have been was a William? man I guess in the book. Uh no, I think there was they were brothers. Oh. Um, yeah, so it's I mean, yeah, that changed like the whole dynamic of the entire you know, villain arc. Mhm. To do that. Hey, but I liked I, just, I liked where it went. I mean, it was I did too. It was I'm, a wild I'm, ride. I'm I'm happy they did it. Yeah. It was a, I, it was a I, Mr. Toad's wild ride of a show. I know that we loved it, and that's why I looked into some of the criticisms of it. And people were like, A, they, they said it was traumatic. Like, basically, they were not responsible with the depictions of horror that some of these people went through, which I get. But at the same time, I kind of think that in episode one, you know, a demonic monster rips all these people's to shreds and explodes their heads. And if you're not looking to be traumatized, I think you should kind of opt out there. Like I'm, I'm also, I'm not disregarding that opinion. I know this is kind of a, a newer social area that we're getting into, but I felt like it was kind of a harsh critique, but I could see how as white people were like, we got so much out of this. And as uh, people of color, it might have been like, this is too much, too far, yeah. too quick. Mm-hmm. I I completely understand that, too. You know, yeah, it's not anyone's job to teach us anything. But that being said, we did learn a lot. Yeah, we did. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad we did. And it uh, and then the other thing was some people complained about the writing once it left the source material that it just like went this way and that way and didn't make any sense. And I completely disagree with that. Yeah, that's like, you know, let people, let artists make their own interpretations, especially if it's at the blessing of the original source creator, which it clearly was. Like, yeah. Matt, um, yeah, Matt Ruff, I was watching in interviews, was just, he seemed completely enamored with, you know, Misha Green and her right. interpretation of his work. If you want everything sp- 
spoon fed to you, just stick to Law and Order or CSI or whatever. That that you've got the material. Just keep watching that. Yeah, or just uh, get some uh, get some a spoonful of sugar. Makes the medicine go down uh, very. Or nice. jag, or jag, or jag. Ian, where can people find us? John, people can find us at One and Done TV on Instagram and Twitter. People can email us at not not at at just regular at at one and done pod at gmail.com. Do not email one and done TV at gmail.com. I'm starting to suspect that is a competing podcast's email. <laughs> and I do not want you to email them and tell us tell them how great we are comparatively. Um we don't can, want to hurt their feelings. No, because I've heard some of that. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, you can Venmo me at Hamel Chin. Venmo me any amount of money. Please, for the love of God, Venmo me any amount of money. Um, you also can go to our website, oneanddonetv.com. There's uh, just bios and pretty much episodes are there. Um, we have a YouTube channel. It's just episodes that are posted on YouTube. Uh, anything else we're doing, John? Am I missing anything? Well, what the viewer should be uh, paying attention to is How To with John Wilson, which is also on HBO Max. Uh, it got picked up for a third season, too. So that'll come out sometime in the future, and I will diligently watch every episode of that multiple times, just as I have the first two seasons. Why are you interrupting my plug? Because that reminds me that the little plastic dish scraper that I plug on every episode I can is called Lodge. Beep! What? The product is from the company Lodge, and it's just a little plastic scraper. And oh my God, if you're tired of arguing over dishes, get it. It's like three inches long, two inches wide, and it changed my entire life and frankly it saved us over covid from soaking dishes john it's a effective strategy and i stand by it actually it reminds me of one time when we lived together that i soaked a dish for like a week and you were pretty much ready to kill me (laughs) yeah that sounds about right there were there were a few times the time that i spilled pizza all over myself oh yeah and that was the same day we couldn't get the internet internet hooked up so you were like really upset that day i was enraged yeah i was texting you like laughing about how mad you were like prodding the bear and you were not having any of it and i love it i to this day love it i'm so glad my genuine frustration can give you so much joy in such a little period of time (laughs) with that uh i believe we are done Thank you so much for listening. We will be back later. Next week. Probably. Boom. Yeah, who knows? Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.